This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, my name is Nathan Hobson, and I'm a host for the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast, a member of the New Books Network. Today, I'll be talking with Dennis Frost about his book, More Than Medals, a history of the Paralympics and disability sports in post-war Japan. More Than Medals is, as its title suggests, a history of disability sports in modern Japan. And the 64, 98, and upcoming Paralympics are important case studies for the book. But Frost's interests go far beyond this pinnacle of international competitive disability sports. More Than Medals explores the history and development of disability sports in Japan, highlighting Japan as an international actor, uh, Oita Prefecture as a domestic and international disability sports mecca, and most of all, the ongoing tension between two visions of the purpose of disability sports, one which is primarily rehabilitative and the other which emphasizes elite athletic competition. As Frost shows, this is fundamental to understanding the dynamics of accessibility and inclusivity in disabled sports. More than medals will appeal to readers interested in the history of Japan, sports, and mega events such as the Paralympics, as well as to those interested in disability studies. So, Dr. Frost, uh, thank you for joining us and welcome to the podcast. Uh, So first, we're going to start off with the sort of traditional question that we ask everyone, which is, uh, how did you become interested in this topic and what led you to write this book? Well, thanks. Uh, And first off, thanks for having me on the podcast. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me about the book. Um, So actually, this project, in some ways, it grew out of my earlier book project and my dissertation, which was on the history of sports stars in Japan. Uh, looking at a, a period, you know, from started in the 1600s, looking at sumo uh, and bringing it up to what at the time was the present, which was Ichido was still playing baseball in the U.S. at that point. Um, and so I was actually in the process of finishing up that dissertation, and I was teaching uh, at my uh, undergraduate alma mater for on a teaching fellowship. Uh, and it was about 2006. I was teaching a class called Sports in East Asia, which I still teach. Uh, and I had a, had a project at the time where students were working on uh, the different Olympic Games that were held in East Asia. Uh, And one of the students approached me and said uh, they were working on the Nagano games. And the student asked me if she could do her presentation or part of her presentation on the Nagano Paralympics. And I had been studying at that point, you know, for Japanese sports for several years uh, at that point. And this was really I mean, I had not really heard about this event. I was like, how in the world is that possible that I have never heard of this major international event in Japan when I've been studying this? Uh, and so I did some digging at that point to try and help out the student initially uh, and realized that there was very little in English, you know, a handful of media coverage in the U.S. on the event, which is what they ended up using mostly. Um, and really minimal Japanese scholarship on the, the Paralympics in Nagano or the Paralympics in general. I said, huh, you know, I filed that away as like this really interesting project. Um, and so, uh, you know, I finished up the first book. Uh, and then right around the time I was starting to look for a new project, I kind of came back to that idea. I was like, that could be really interesting. Uh, and also, you know, I mentioned this uh, in the introduction, but um, my younger son was actually born uh, not long before that with with spina bifida. Uh, and so right around the time I was starting to think about this new project and kind of what I wanted to do for my next book project, uh, he was starting to kind of develop an interest in sports. Uh, you know, he was old enough. He was seeing other kids play sports, hearing about other kids playing sports. And 
Uh, and with spina bifida, he has some impairments that meant that he uses a wheelchair for distance. Uh, and so we were going to have to look beyond, you know, traditional youth sports. Uh, and so partly because I was from, had, you know, developed a little bit of familiarity with uh, what I call disability sports or adapted sports. Um, I looked around kind of new to kind of look for kind of rehabilitation hospitals and things like that. Turns out we had a program relatively close to us. Uh, and so we became really involved at the kind of personal level as a family with him playing sled hockey, uh, wheelchair tennis, uh, a number of other activities that he engages in. Um, and so this became kind of a combination of a, a personal project uh, along with kind of this academic interest that grew out of, like, like I said, the student asking me a question uh, that I just didn't know about. Uh, and it ended up, um, you know, I started that project uh, in like, 2006 was kind of the initial inspiration, did a little digging then. Um, but really, my first research trip was in 2011 uh, in June. Uh, which so right after, you know, the, I went to Tokyo uh, and everything, I, you know, was still pretty dark uh, and very hot because uh, the air conditioning was all off because um, Japan was still recovering uh, very directly from the, the 311 uh, incident. So, uh, you know, so that was that was really the kind of a genesis of the project in lots of ways. That was kind of the first research trip where I kind of discovered a lot of these initial materials and things like that. So uh, and it became this really um, terrific project then over the next several years of working with uh, people in Japan, uh, connecting with a lot of people all over Japan. I mean, I did work in Tokyo, did work in Oita, uh, did some work in, in Nagano, uh, several other places around Japan doing research for this project. Uh, so, uh, and I, I talk about, um, you know, one of the things I say is that this was really in many ways a collaborative project because I benefited from so many contacts that people would then put me in touch with somebody else who would then put me in touch with somebody else. And, uh, you know, it was a, a terrific project to kind of get to know so many people in so many different places. Yeah, so that, that's kind of the genesis of the project um, in, in many respects. Yeah, thanks. That's that's really interesting how all these different uh, interests and coincidences, you know, become this confluence that leads to uh, this one big project. Uh, so I'd like to actually jump into that project. Sure. Yeah. Um, so you position your book as a history of, and I just want to quote you here from your introduction, uh, individuals, institutions, and events that played important roles in the development of the Paralympics and disability sports in Japan. And you start with the 64 uh, Tokyo Olympics and Paralympics. Uh, one of the themes, though, that you return to throughout the book uh, is the tension between uh, two different sort of visions for disability sports, right? One which is primarily about rehabilitation and the other which is primarily or sort of emphasizes at least elite athletic competition. Mm -hmm. um, and so as a way of starting to sketch out the, the outlines of the book and sort of what you're getting at here, can you explain this conflict um, and what it is meant to the big picture history of disability sports in modern Japan? Yeah, no, that's a, a great question. Uh, and it is actually um, a, a theme that, you know, is pretty intentional in the book. And it's something that I realized pretty early on. Uh, and it's, honestly, once you get into it, it's hard to miss um, uh, the, the history here. Uh, and, and part of it is, um, you know, in fact, I actually had the original, one of the other, uh, original titles for the book was uh, from, uh, from Patience to Prose, uh, which kind of played with that idea of kind of the, you know, the rehabilitation to, to professional athletes. Uh, but the part of this has to do with kind of the origins of the Paralympics themselves. And I think we'll probably chat about that in relation to 64 a little bit. But I mean, they really were an event that was tied to uh, the medical field, the rehabilitation of people that had had some usually some sort of injury um, that had left them with an impairment and disability. Uh, and so kind of recovering from that, returning to, you know, returning to society, returning to work. Um, and so sports were seen as kind of part and parcel of that from the very early phases. Uh, and so if you're looking at kind of the early Paralympics, that's what almost all of it is about, right? It's all about the, the rehabilitation focus. Uh, and the, that's the purpose of the games. They're not 
sports events for in themselves, in and of themselves, right? They're supposed to be the serving this medical purpose. Uh, and so, you know, that's that's part of it. And what what happens is that if you begin gradually, especially as they begin to take off and you get more and more people engaging in them and more and more, you know, organizations kind of promoting them, you begin to see more people talking about the the Paralympics and, and about disability sports in general as, you know, not just for rehabilitation. Then you start seeing it about this is, you know, for for life, right? This is something sports for life. Uh, this is something uh, and, and eventually you start seeing more people start taking it more seriously. And there's you start seeing a development of kind of this emphasis on competition. And in particular, you see that emerge uh, in the Japanese context um, and really even beyond the Japanese context in the, in the late 1980s. Uh, and kind of a, a key moment there is the creation of the International Paralympic Committee. Um, before that, there'd been some, several, I don't want to get too far into the weeds here with the bureaucratic stuff, but there'd been several kind of organizations that were tasked with kind of organizing these big international events. Uh, but the IPC ends up becoming an organization that from the very beginning is explicitly interested in promoting uh, the Paralympics as elite sport on on par with the Olympics. That basically, this is this is a version of the Olympics for people with physical disabilities. And at that point, it is still physical disabilities. Um, so it does expand eventually uh, as well. But uh, but so that is kind of the, the big moment of transition in some ways, kind of at the international level. And it's, it plays out in Japan in the same way. Uh, and all of the events that I look at kind of show that trajectory, right? So the 64 games are very much um, kind of rehabilitation oriented. The FISBIT games, which I talk about, start with a rehabilitation focus. And by the time they end, they have moved very much in this direction of kind of elite competitive sport. Uh, and then you have on the other side, uh, you know, the, the Oita Marathon, which I also talk about in the book, is, is another example. You see it start off as very rehabilitation oriented, medically oriented. Uh, and now it's kind of it still has some pieces of that. Uh, and that's the, that's what gets interesting. And that's probably where this tension emerges that you kind of highlighted um, is that there is this this kind of. As it, as it evolved, you start seeing some people explicitly rejecting the rehabilitation focus. Um, and it, they'll say, no, this is not about that. And in fact, uh, there was an article in the news just recently in the Japanese media talking about how they want to use the word parasports uh, to emphasize the fact uh, that these are competitive events and that they're not about rehabilitation. So this is still something that we're talking about you know, in Japan, 60 years after the games first arrived in Japan. Uh, and so it's something that hasn't gone away. Uh, and it's something that also, in some respects, you know, and I had, didn't write about this so much in the book, I've kind of been exploring this in some other places as well, but the what you saw is a shift towards inspirational discourses tied to the, the Paralympics. Uh, and that, in many ways, is is rooted in this in this old rehabilitation-oriented discourses. So there's, there's interesting kind of connections there. Uh, and so as much as they're downplaying the rehabilitation focus, they're playing up this inspirational element of the games in more recent uh, events. Uh, and so, you know, it's kind of, you're getting a little of both, uh, and it's still kind of peppered through. Uh, and again, part of it is is the society, the organizations, kind of that are promoting this. Part of it is the athletes, um, because you know it's really fascinating to see, and like particularly in the Nagano Games, uh, when I started digging that, there's a very explicit kind of intentional emphasis on the part of athletes to say, no, we are not here to recover. We are we're elite athletes, just like the Olympians that you just saw, you know, two weeks ago. Uh, performing. And so you're starting to see the media talking about that kind of shift as well. So, so it's got, it, it, it touches on pretty much everything in one way or another in the book. Uh, and it is a, a kind of recurring kind of idea, this question, uh, particularly I think in the Japanese context, but even beyond that, uh, this, this tension between the medicalized rehabilitation focus of the early games uh, and this new kind of emphasis on the, the elite side, elite competitive sports. Uh, and even in 64, this was one of the things that was so fascinating for me to find this. Um, that they would use the language of, of this, this game is about, it's not about the medals. It's not about winning. 
Um, but then in the same, like, you know, you, I'd read like, you know, a paragraph later and then they talk about how, but this is not just a kind of sports meet, an undokai, um, right, where people just come and participate. No, it's actually, it's competition. And so there's even that tension was there from the very beginning. Uh, and so, you know, so it's not something new that emerges in 89, but it, it definitely kind of takes a different spin in 89, particularly with the, the establishment of the IPC. So, I mean, I could go on, but I'm, I'm sure there's lots of other stuff you want to talk about too. Well, yeah, and I'm glad you brought up the the question of inspiration, because one of the things that happened since I read your book, I was listening to a, another podcast, and there was an interview with a woman who had lost uh, a leg as a child to bone cancer. And she was talking about how you know people will come up to her when she's just doing things in ordinary, you know, everyday life, and they'll say, you're such an inspiration. And she's like, you know, stop. Like, <laughs> and, and so, so this problem, this is, you know, this is, so one of the things that your book does really nicely is, you know, sort of highlighted that kind of problem of to what extent this can be uh, regular and normal, and to what extent it, it is sort of inspiration porn, and to what extent it is, you know, just purely sport, uh, and how these things are really in um, tension with each other. Uh, and so, yeah, this was a really interesting theme for me uh, reading the book. And another one, um, and I think it's related, uh, is questions of accessibility and inclusion, as you put it, in disability sports. Um, and especially this is as opposed to sort of other sorts of mega event studies that focus on uh, economic, political, environmental impacts of uh, large scale events, especially sporting events. From this perspective, uh, I think you're arguing that disability sports mega events have been something of a mixed blessing in Japan. Uh, and I guess, you know, that sort of would make sense from the kind of tensions we're talking about, but especially vis-a-vis -vis the role that sports have played in shaping how societies understand the human body. Um, and this is a thread that you pick up right away in chapter one as well. So we'll talk about it more maybe there. But um, it seemed to me to be a major contention, a major sort of argument of the book. Yeah, definitely. Um and and I think that that there's you know several ways that, that you could kind of run with that that question. I mean, one of them is thinking about kind of accessibility uh, in terms of built environments. So I, the the body aspect is I think one I'll come back to in just a second. But there's also the accessibility issues around things like the built environment and kind of uh, barrier free environments, which um, now is like all the buzz uh, in Japan, um, partly because you know the aging rapidly aging society, um, but also and also the Paralympics. Um, but that's something that, you know, in 64, that was not on the agenda at all, partly because it happened so fast. As again, we'll probably chat about that here in a little bit. But th there was just no time to think about those types of issues. Uh, and But by the time you're getting into, like, the, the, the 80s and the 90s, that is very much on the agenda, right? It's on the agenda in Kobe and the FISBIT games uh, in 89. It's on the agenda very explicitly in the case of Nagano. In fact, I mean, one of the points I would argue is that Nagano really lays a lot of the groundwork for kind of some of the stuff that we've actually seen in connection with 2020 uh, in ways that I don't think was has been fully acknowledged uh, in many places uh, in, in the Japanese context. Um, but but so that that part of the accessibility is, is another kind of, that's, again, a thread that kind of runs through the book. Uh, but also, I think, uh, you know, that there is some some ways in which um, in terms of the body, I mean, one of these is that many people with disabilities were viewed initially at this time period, especially I think the Paralympics initially is for it's kind of a split event, right, uh, in the Japanese context in 64. Uh, and the Paralympics that are connected with the Stoke Manville Games are for people that uh, have spinal cord injuries. Uh, and so this is people that in the Japanese context at that point in time might have kind of spent a, the majority of their time then in hospitals or in their homes, um, not being out uh, and kind of interacting society. And so, you know, beginning in 64, right, this is kind of transforming that image. You have people with spinal cord injuries that might have paraplegia, um, and that's where the name Paralympics actually originates in the Japanese context anyway. 
Um, and, and so that is, uh, you know, that is a very different image, right? People thinking about people with disabilities in very different ways and kind of just seeing people in, in public performing uh, sporting events and, and different kind of activities uh, was, was part of that. Uh, but you also have, I think, as the games go on and the different events that I look at, one of the other things that was in some ways, I think, particularly kind of unique about the, the Japanese case, at least that I looked at and kind of that's partly where I focus. So, so I'm sure this is true in other contexts as well. Uh, but but there's this increasing emphasis on kind of con constantly opening kind of the 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 door for new people to participate uh, in these events. Uh, and so, you know, it's very clear in the case of the Feastbit Games, which we'll talk about as well. Uh, but it's, it's you know, one event that kind of always strike, struck me as kind of fascinating was this event uh, in the Feastbit Games in Kobe where they created a new sport, essentially, by adding a second basketball hoop uh, for people that were not able to shoot for, you know, the traditional rim. Um, so they put one kind of on the floor, kind of basically kind of, you know, about four feet off the ground. Um, and this suddenly made it possible for a whole new group of people to play a sport, right, that, that they wouldn't have been able to. And so that constant kind of expanding of the category of, of what it means to be an athlete in society is another way we see this. But at the same time, that, that mixed blessing idea um, part of this is is like that the discourses that surround the Paralympics, uh, particularly you know starting in '64. One of the things I saw really clearly was that there was almost a kind of a, a dark message that they were creating about disability in order to sell the Paralympics to, to an audience. Uh, and so you know, and that that has a long term impact um, on how people perceive disability and thought about disability. Uh, and you know, there's some some fascinating kind of video footage um, that that's just been found uh, within the last you know last year actually, a uh, year and a half. Uh, and, you know, one of the clips in there, I was listening to it, I'm like, oh my gosh, like this is, this is so striking that this is really a negative view of disability that's being promoted actively at the time uh, by people um, connected to the Paralympics in their effort to kind of sell these games and say how necessary they are. They're trying to kind of, and maybe we can talk about this maybe more when we get into the, the 64 stuff. But, um, but, you know, that's something that, that really struck me that, that, so it isn't all this positive stuff, right? There's, there's lots of positives that come out of this, but there's also some, some downsides. Uh, and it, it does also, you know, particularly kind of this elite competitive element of sports that we were just chatting about has, it's, has huge downsides because it means that a lot of people can't participate uh, at this level. And so they're never getting these opportunities. Uh, and so you, and to make these opportunities possible that it costs a lot of money. Uh, and so that means you have to kind of decide where you're going to put the resources. So, so there's lots of ways in which it kind of, it, it is shaping kind of perceptions. The other thing I would say, and this is something I feel like I acknowledge uh, pretty openly in the book is that it's also really hard to measure things like changes in attitude. Uh, I mean, that's one of those things that, that there is always a lot of talk about how this, these events shift attitudes. We have no data for that, um, you know, and you, the best you can do is kind of see like, well, this is how it's being represented. And occasionally you get a glimpse in like a newspaper, you know, letter to the editor type thing. Um, you know, so it's, it's really hard to kind of do that. There's some more recent data for 2020. And so maybe we will actually have some some better information kind of in the after, aftermath of these uh, uh, upcoming games. Um, but but yeah, but that is it's, a, I think, a fascinating kind of question, uh, one that's really challenging to answer uh, in, a, in a concrete way. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. 
Yeah, thank you. Um, and so in, in that answer, you, you uh, uh, very kindly segued right into some of the things I wanted to ask you about in chapter one, uh, which is about the 64 uh, Olympics and Paralympics. Uh, so one of the things that really struck me is something that you alluded to, which is, oh, my God, how, how last minute was this? I mean, it was it was thrown together in just like no time at all um, and without much of a budget either. Right. Um, and you also you, you mentioned the Stoke Mandeville game. So I want to sort of take us back to that as a, as a precursor. Right. So I want to think about the prehistory of 64, um, starting with uh, Ludwig Gutmann and the Stoke Mandeville games um, and then the sort of frenzied effort to throw together the Paralympics uh, in the early 1960s. Yeah, this was, I mean, when I started uh, working on this, I had no idea uh, about these events. I mean, this is something, you know, I knew it had happened, but I just didn't know the story. Uh, And the more you get into it, the more you're just like, what in the world? How in the, did this even happen? Uh, And so uh, to to start off, like you said, to backtrack a little bit. So the the Paralympics are really, by 1964, they're not that old. Um, You know, they really emerge in the 1940s in in England uh, at Stoke Mandeville Hospital, kind of tied in particular to Ludwig Gutmann. Uh, who is a uh, a phys- physician that is kind of specializing in treating spinal cord injuries? He wants to kind of he's he's disappointed with the kind of recovery rates of many of the patients in the hospitals, and part of it is that they just are they're stuck in beds, um, and so he's doing whatever he can to get them out and kind of moving, uh, and so he starts kind of promoting sports in general, and then kind of competitive sports. His, the first you know. Stoke Manville Games are, I think, an archery competition in 1948. They're held in conjunction at the same time as the Olympics that are being held in London. Uh, you know, so it's very intentional, kind of even from the beginning, kind of this linkage with the Olympic movement. Uh, and so they're, they're, then they grow very kind of slowly. But I mean, they attract a lot of kind of attention within England and you get some international competition in the first few years. Uh, and then uh, 1960 is, is traditionally seen as the first uh, Paralympics, right? That is, and that's the, the games that are held in Rome. And it's the first time that they're held at the same site uh, as the, the, uh, the Olympic Games were. Um, there's all sorts of interesting sort of stories there. Uh, and this, then there's talk, of course, well, when the next Olympics are going to be in Tokyo, we should do this there. Uh, and that's, you know, the talk is among the people at, in, in connection with the Stoke Manville Games. Um, but there's really, there's nobody that is aware of these games in Japan in 1960. Um, you know, Japan has uh, some history of, of, you know, sports for people with disabilities in connection with the military, which is actually a history that's really just getting explored right now. I mean, there's very few people that are kind of familiar with that history. I mean, I stumbled across a few things and I know a couple of other people that are kind of finding some things. But they, again, they found some stuff while I was there doing research, right, at one of these archives that was documenting some of these events. But really, I mean, the, the Paralympics, nobody had participated from Japan ever. Uh, in the Stoke Manville Games. There was nobody in um, Rome to participate in the games. The one observer is there because uh, her partner is, uh, her husband is, uh, I think, connected to the Rome. Uh, he's on a, a, the I'm blanking on it, right? He's, he's in Rome for, to work for the newspaper, essentially. Uh, I think it's Kyoto or one of those, uh, those national or international networks. Um, and so she's there because he's there, goes to this because she has an interest in rehabilitation and kind of labor practices and things like this. She's heard about this. She goes. Um, so she's the only one that's there. There's no official delegation from Japan. Uh, and so that's where it starts, 1960. And then there's some, uh, you also have Nakamura Yutaka, who I'm sure we'll talk about because he's kind of a key figure in several of the chapters here. Uh, but Nakamura Yutaka had also spent some time in Stoke Manville, partly because he'd been sent by the Japanese government to go study rehabilitation practices. And so he had been exposed to these ideas. He, but he wasn't in Rome. He ends up back in Japan in Oita, where he's from, and starts promoting sports events there. And, and then you also see have a kind of series of kind of meetings that are held in Tokyo. Initially, there's kind of 
they're kind of thinking, well, this is not possible. There's no way we can organize an event. We have no institutions in place. We have no money. The government is kind of not offering them any money at this point. Uh, and then there's a whole series of kind of fascinating kind of meetings and events and kind of, and some of this, the, the biggest challenge I ran into with this is that a lot of the material is lost. Um, from this period, there's there's very few original records, right? All I had was kind of some official reports uh, and some, you know, recreating some stuff from Nakamura's biography. Uh, there's very little original documentation left from this period. It just kind of has gotten lost over the years. Uh, but but you know, so we don't know exactly who said what at what point. Uh, but it ends up coming coming together. It's less by the time they actually start organizing. It's like late 1961, um, and so they put this event together in in three years, no budget. Um, initially, they're they're fundraising like crazy, working with all these volunteer organizations. So they're working with a lot of rehabilitation in organizations. They're working with uh, the NHK's uh, social rehabilitation uh, network, uh, the Asahi's network as well. Uh, you know, and so they've got all these kind of different kind of groups that they're working with. And really, that's how it comes together. It's this kind of combination of kind of volunteer efforts. Uh, they do eventually get the Japanese government kind of comes on board. Um, and kind of offer some support, but it's really it's minimal, right? I mean, that's 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 the amazing thing about this. It's actually largely kind of privately funded, um, and, and so it's not the government kind of dumping a lot of money into this. It's, it's funded by a different kind of organizations and groups and all this kind of fundraising efforts. There's a you know they actually collected donations at, at bars in the Tokyo area and things like that. Uh, so it, just a fascinating story of how it all comes together, and it's frenzied. Um, the fact that they actually get access to the Olympic Village. I think it's like two to five days or something. And I, I should know this date exactly, but it's like five days before the event is supposed to start. And they're then having to very quickly, you know, make these facilities accessible, uh, which is why, like I said, it, that's why you don't see accessibility as a, as a focus, right? They just don't have time, right? It's about throwing this event together as quickly as possible and kind of making it as successful as they can and marketing like crazy. Uh, and that's, you know, that's one of the fascinating things too, is that just how actively they were promoting this. Uh, and so, yeah, and then maybe we'll, we'll chat more about that. I'll kind of, I'll pause there and the, if you have another question. Yeah, no, that, that's, that's perfect because I did want to ask you about promotion. I mean, one of the things that comes out in this chapter is that there are multiple sort of agendas underlying the uh, Paralympics in 64. Um, and so you have the official goals of promoting social rehabilitation for the physically disabled and contributing to international goodwill, as you put it. Um, it's also, uh, it becomes a, a tool for sort of Japan, what we would now call sort of soft power policy. Politics, right, the sort of uh, revival of Japanese, you know, international prestige, um, and so how does that happen, right? I mean, like, how, how do how does how, how does the government end up piggybacking on this? How do you know these sort of big interests uh, get involved? Um, and so, I mean, in, in, a, in a in a in a nutshell, right? I mean, what the question is: What did the Paralympics mean, and and how did they get to be that way? And I have to say, I mean, personally, I was really interested in. Um, your analysis of how the games functioned um, as part of uh, the evidence for, uh, you know, something that you've already alluded to, which is the the sort of darkness uh, of, of uh, you know, disability in Japan um, and how that was juxtaposed with, uh, and I'm going to quote you here, uh, what you call uh, the, to- the fact that the Tokyo Games did demonstrate to a wide audience that people with disabilities, including those in Japan, were more than patients stuck in hospitals, right? So you have this uh, this very dark portrayal of disability and this, uh, you know, por- and then you're contrasting that with this image of, okay, people are, can get out of the hospital and be athletes. And then you have the, let's have a disability sports games 
and let's have a soft power politics. And so there's all these things going on here. And I wonder if you can unpack this for us, unravel it a little bit. Yeah, yeah, I'll do. I'll see what I can do. Um, that's a great question. And I think, you know, part of this is that um, you, you end up having multiple people kind of come on board. Uh, and I think that that's part of it. It is fueled primarily, I think, on the promotion side by people that are interested in using it for the purposes of rehabilitation. And that is that is the driving force. I mean, and that's that's probably central. And I, and I kind of already touched on that already. Uh, and that makes perfect sense because that is internationally what the games are about at that point. Right. That's what that's what Gutman's about. Um, that's what these games are for. They're to, to promote rehabilitation. To promote, and, but I mean, at the same time, even Gutman is talking about um, these are goodwill experiments, right? This is kind of to promote international relations and spirit uh, between the people that have disabilities in different contexts and to help them kind of help each other uh, is kind of that idea. Uh, and so, you know, so that's, that's part of the international movement in some senses. And it's very much kind of a driving force in the Japanese context. And, and the key promoters are themselves the people that are tied to kind of either uh, they're medical specialists or they're, they're tied to, to rehabilitation organizations, uh, or um, they had deeper ties to these organizations before that, right? You have uh, Kasai Yoshitsuke, who is, has, has long ties to the Japanese government, and he was a, a key figure. Uh, this is something, you know, I discovered after the fact, didn't realize this until later. Um, he was a key figure in kind of developing kind of the post-war legislation around disability. Um, in Japan. So this is somebody who's had a long interest in disability uh, in one form or another. And so, so, I mean, that's kind of your core group of promoters. And so that's, that's their agenda. And they are the ones who talk the most, essentially, right? They, there's very little discussion coming from the athletes themselves. Uh, so that they're, they're driving the discussion in many ways. And so, and they are the ones who are using often that language of disability in Japan. Japan is so behind. Japan is so far behind the rest of the world, you know, and they, they're constantly listing countries that are doing, doing disability sports when Japan is not. And it's meant to show, uh, cause it's, you know, it's countries like Iraq or Iran, like, like that you shouldn't think about them being kind of on, on par with Japan is what the Japanese context is saying. Right. And, and, but this is, this is like, we're behind is the, their image that they're trying to convey. And they do that in many cases by juxtaposing the Japanese athletes who are dark and often they describe them as that way, dark and kind of, uh, and not able to compete at this level with the other people uh, that are competing. And it's often used not just in terms of competition, because again, that's, it's supposed to not be about competition. This is where we're seeing that tension again, uh, but it's not just about the competition. It's about kind of the way of life and the rehabilitation that has been kind of embedded sports are an embedded part of this broader rehabilitation focus in these other contexts. And that's what Japan needs. And that's what they want to use these, the Paralympics for these promoters. Um, but you also see, uh, you know, I think one of the things that they do in order to promote the games is that they actively reach out to the, the Imperial household. Uh, and so they're you, working very closely with the crown prince and the crown prince, um, uh, who eventually became the emperor, of course, um, was deeply involved with the, the Paralympic movement and with disability sports for the rest of his life. I mean, I didn't, don't kind of continue that thread through the book, but he's he's there. Um, and right up to the, his recent um, abdication, he was has been kind of involved in kind of various activities. Uh, kind of raising the status of, of disability sports in, in a very profound way. So, I mean, it became a long-term commitment. So I don't want to kind of make it sound like it was just, he just jumped on board for this. But but there were other people who clearly saw this as a way to create create a role for the crown prince that paralleled the role that had been given to the emperor in connection with the, the Olympic Games. Uh, and, you know, and this also was used to promote the, for the media because 
anytime the crown prince was doing anything, the media was there. Uh, and so this was a way that the, the, clearly the organized realized, that, okay, this is beneficial for us because this brings us publicity, you know, aside from just the kind of the connection to the emperor, it's also kind of getting us in the news uh, in a big way. Uh, and so you do see, I think, several of the media organizations that, in, that get involved with this. So NHK is kind of actually has live coverage of the, the, some of the Paralympic events. Uh, which is something that, you know, even I think a lot of people didn't don't realize that like 64, there was actually live coverage of some events in, in these games in Japan. Um, and then, uh, you know, Asahi also, but part of that is that they also were kind of in this group of people, the groups of organizations that were involved in kind of promoting events. So there's kind of a direct tie for them. Uh, you know, this is clearly also meant to kind of get viewers or get readers. Uh, and so that's another agenda that you see. Uh, there is also uh, one of the other pieces here is, is that Japan needs to do, to host this event. And this is especially true of kind of the early decision to host. Um, you know, and Nakamura is really kind of eager to kind of promote this. And he often uses this rhetoric of, well, what is it going to look like if Japan, which pr professes to be, you know, a social welfare state, a modern social welfare state, if we don't do this, um, it's going to like essentially be a black eye in the international community for us. Um, you know, so... Uh, so this is something that that they feel like they have to kind of the, the, the organizers are kind of actively kind of promoting that aspect of it as well. So so it really does. It has a whole um, series of kind of different agendas kind of intersecting. Uh, and, and of course, many of the same people are in, involved in all of those pieces. Right. Kasai is I think, again, I don't have any evidence to back this up, but my guess is that Kasai was instrumental uh, in, in kind of engineering the kind of role of the crown prince because he had deep ties to the government before this. Um, and so. But we don't actually have any any documentation of who contacted who on what days or anything like that. But uh, but, you know, so I think, you know, he was obviously kind of somebody interested in rehabilitation, obviously had the deep ties to kind of people that would help to kind of engineer those kind of uh, those developments. So. Uh, so, yeah, so a lot of the people are kind of doing the same thing. Uh, the other thing is, you know, this tension you kind of talk about of kind of. Uh, the, the dark uh, image of kind of representation of how disability is so dark in Japan and then the, the positive side of this. Uh, this is this is a tension because it's it's showing the rest again showing the rest of the world that Japan is is kind of in this international community, but it's also meant to kind of uh, I, I think of it as kind of it's like negative nationalism, right? Um, it's kind of how I, I think of it, and kind of using this kind of international pressure to create a change in Japan, um, and so that it it and it does. I mean, I think it, it's pretty effective uh, at motivating a lot of people to to pursue this and to kind of promote this and kind of get on board. Uh, and, and so in some ways it makes sense that they use this approach. Uh, and, and also, I mean, to, to be fair to the organizers, I mean, if you're looking at kind of Japanese participants in this, many of them were coming from hospitals. Um, so they were in a very different position from the international athletes that were coming abroad, many of whom had, you know, were, were working full time and then sports was something they did on the side. Uh, but one of the points I raised in, in the book is that, you know, at the same time, those comparisons are so kind of fraught uh, because you're talking about people that have made a choice to come to Japan that have clearly the resources to be able to do that because this is not something that governments are paying for necessarily at that point in time. Uh, so this is people who can afford to come to Japan, are willing to come to Japan. That's probably not your typical person with a disability in England, let's say. Um, but they're becoming seen as the example that Japan is comparing itself against. Um, and so you're seeing these patients that have just been in the hospital uh, you know, they're suddenly participating in these games, you know, a month or two after they were in the hospital. Uh, and then they're being compared with an atypical athlete. And that's being used as the basis for comparisons of, of Japan and people with disabilities in Japan in general. Uh, and so, you know, I think this does create this kind of 
if you if you're in a time like this uh, and you are thinking about disability, like how are you how are you supposed to feel about that? Um, uh, and I think it it probably was kind of this this tense moment uh, for for some people, but it is also a, a moment where these are people that might not have ever shown up in a newspaper, might not have ever shown up on. I mean, there's 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 like I said, there's video coverage of this, there's there's television coverage of this, there's there's movies and documentaries that are made, and so this is this is representation on a scale that would have, was unprecedented, um, and so it's kind of creating a whole different kind of perspective uh, than than you would have had otherwise. So so that is where I think you know there's there's two sides to it, um, and again, it's it's very difficult to see which side kind of won out. Uh, in terms of kind of social attitudes and kind of what 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 ends up kind of becoming the dominant narrative after this, except that you see a recurrence of this same idea later that the Paralympics and these other events are necessary to change social attitudes, which suggests to me that maybe they didn't change social attitudes as effectively as we we would hope that they would. Um, yeah, and I'll, I'll I'll pause there, and you can go ahead and kind yeah, of sure. Up. No, so I I, I wanted to say, I mean I. I First of all, it's very helpful uh, sort of clarification of you know all the sort of confusing uh, vectors that are going on. Um, but specifically, you know, I, I want to jump on that idea of sort of negative nationalism. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's it's an interesting thing that comes up in uh, discussions of this whole Nihon Jindon idea, you know, mm-hmm. discourses of the Jap- of Japanese-ness and Japanese culture and whatever. But the, you know, th- these negative self portrayals, mm-hmm. which people often, you know, sort of popularly tend to forget about are incredibly powerful leverage, right? right. Uh, to, to get, to, to sort of move the, move things from, uh, you know, both discourse and action. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I'm glad that you sort of keyed in on that. Mm-hmm. Um, another, I want to jump, uh, jump us forward in the book yeah, sure. um, and look at chapters two and three together. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, and the reason I want to do that is because uh, of Nakamura, who you've mentioned, Nakamura Yutaka. Mm-hmm. Um, he are, already appears, uh, as as you've hinted, um, in chapter one. Um, he's a big player in the Tokyo, in the Tokyo Games, um, but he's really central to uh, disability sports history in Japan much more broadly, as you show in chapters one, two, and three. So I want to sort of you know put them all together yeah. uh, and start off by just asking the simple question: Who was Nakamura Yutaka? Um, and how is he important to disability sports? I know it's a simple question, but I'm sure the I know the answer is not quite so simple. Yeah, yeah. So um, I mean, it is. It's a he's a fascinating figure on so many levels. Um, and and actually, I mean, I'm actually my next project. I'm going to kind of dig in deeper into his kind of work beyond disability sports. Uh, so uh, so who is Nakamura? Uh, he's he's a um, orthopedic surgeon from Oita, from Beppu in particular. He grew up in the Beppu region. Uh, and one of the points that I kind of explore in, in chapter three in particular uh, is kind of his background and how it overlaps with this period where Oita becomes kind of a site that is being used by the military to treat people that have been wounded in the war. Uh, and so uh, and that has all sorts of implications. And maybe we'll get into that in, in a little bit and, and when we talk about chapter three here. Uh, but in terms of Nakamura, so he grows up in this region. He's from a medical family. He goes into medical practice in part because his dad wanted him to. Um, it sounds like he didn't want to supposedly chose orthopedics because it was going to be this field that uh, he could work with technology in because he liked technology, liked cars and, and mechanics and stuff like that. Um, but he ends up working with some people in in Q, at Qdai, I believe it's Qdai, yeah, um, where where he, that are people that have been connected with some of those activities I was talking about in the wartime period. Uh, and so he gets on board in some ways with with international rehabilitation at this moment when nobody else is really doing it in Japan. 
Uh, and so that's why he writes some books uh, and publishes something very early on, ends up getting sent to around the world on this tour to kind of see different places and the kind of different approaches, latches on to Gutman's idea of kind of sports uh, as a form of rehabilitation, uh, comes back and starts promoting this in, um, in Oita in particular initially. But also, he is a, a kind of a driving force behind the, the Tokyo Games. Uh, you know, he's he's this fascinating figure. He's you know taking the night train up to Tokyo, going to all these meetings, uh, and then kind of taking the night train back, right? Uh, and and so you know he's just just completely driven, and he's somebody who you know I kind of think of as somebody who who somebody tells you no, and he's like, okay, then how can I figure out how to get a yes? Uh, and he just keeps coming and keeps coming, and oftentimes somebody will tell him no, and he'll so he'll just go and find a different person that he can work with. And when he gets them going for a while, and then eventually they kind of, other people are like, oh, okay, you've already started. Well, I guess we'll come on board. Uh, and so several of his events and activities he's involved with are very much like that. I mean, that's that's the, the Feastbit games are that way. Um, and the, the Oita Marathon, which is why you're, that's chapter two and, and three are the Feastbit games and Oita Marathon. And he's involved in starting both of those. Um, and and so, you know, in that sense, he becomes kind of, he's often referred to now. And this was somebody, when, again, when I first started working on this project, um, I would mention his name and, you know, only people who were really connected to disability sports had heard the name. Um, and now um, he's actually, there's several books that have come out about him, uh, biographies. Uh, you know, he's often referred to as the father of the, par the Japanese father of the Paralympics. Uh, and, and so, you know, he's become much more kind of known uh, because of the, the 2020 games coming up. Uh, and so, uh, and that's, you know, I think that's great. Uh, it's terrific because it's, it's a fascinating story. He's a fascinating figure. Uh, but so he, he's instrumental in a lot of these early events. Um, and, and, it also ends up forming this this factory called Taiyo no Ie uh, in Beppu, uh, which is designed to be a workplace that's going to essentially be accessible and be able for people with a disability to have a job uh, and find employment. And eventually, this you know it starts off as kind of a small workshop essentially, and now it's you know I think the largest employer in Beppu and has branches in several other areas in Japan uh, and major kind of alliances with other Japanese companies. And so again, this is kind of his brainchild. Um, that he started uh, right after the, the Tokyo Paralympics is when he kind of launches this. Uh, and, you know, it kind of takes off. Uh, and that's, you know, another reason why, and he's constantly using that as kind of a, a base for support of these different disability sports events that he's launching and things like that. So a lot of this is kind of, again, kind of like the, the, the event that was like 1964, like there's so many different threads that kind of intersect here uh, in really fascinating ways with, with him. Uh, but he's often at the center of them. I mean, that was one of the, you know, people say, why, why did these events happen in Oita? Well, it's because Nakamura was there. Uh, and that's, you know, that's a quote I think I have in one of the chapters. Uh, and it's definitely true. I mean, in so many ways. Yeah, and I want to talk about uh, both FISPIC, the Far East and South Pacific Games for the Disabled, which is Chapter Two, mm -hmm. and uh, the Marathon. But I, I just I did want to note that there's there's a part of me that uh, was listening to you talk. It, it sounded like it sounds like you're, you're you're talking about a band that you knew when before they went big and you know signed their their major <laughs> their record first major record deal. You know, it's like I knew that covered up back before the 2020 games and everybody started. So yeah, anyway, there is some I, of that. I, There's some of that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I, I appreciate that. That's yeah. that's that's yeah. okay. It's I'm not knocking it. Anyway, <laughs> so I wanted to uh, to to take us on to chapter two, um, which is about Feastpick. Uh, which starts in 75. Uh, and the last games, uh, because Facebook is now defunct, uh, is in 2006 in Malaysia. Mm -hmm. um, and so in, in this chapter, chapter two, you're showing that the games played a, a pioneering role in promoting disability sports uh, in uh, the, the region, which is the Far East and South mm -hmm. Pacific. Um, and FISPIC, uh, it's also an opportunity, though, again, for Japan uh, to do a little 
sort of regional soft power politics to make itself the the disability sports superpower in the you know in in south and southeast in sort of north and southeast asia um and i want to i want you to talk a little bit about the history and challenges of facebook of course um and then that sort of moment of transformation which you alluded to earlier in, in 1989 at kobe um and also what what happened to facebook and first of all i, I have to say i had no I'd never heard of Facebook mm-hmm. uh, before reading this. And so it's sort of, you know, and when I was reading the chapter, I was surprised that an event like this would have just kind of fallen apart, right? Ended. Um, and, and so I'd love to think about why that is mm-hmm. uh, and what the legacy of the event is for disability sports. Yeah, yeah. That's a such a, a I mean, that's a great question. Um, so many different angles. I'll try and get all of them. Feel free to kind of remind me if I, if I drop one. Um, so uh, to, to start off, I mean, these games start in 1975 and they're, they're in some ways the brainchild of Nakamura. I mean, he worked with several other people in the region, so it's not just him, of course. Um, but but this is meant to be an event that is for people in this region, in particular because a lot of the people in this region are not going to be able to travel to London for the Stoke Manville Games. Or to, it's England. It's not actually technically London. I was actually corrected on that by somebody in Britain once. Um, so you know, it's it's Stoke Manville is not London, uh, but to cover travel to England uh, for Stoke Manville Games. Uh, because it's too expensive. Um, and and also, like, they're not at a level where they're going to be able to compete in these international, again, increasingly competitive games as they're going on. Uh, and the Paralympics, as they're traveling around, are, you know, they're not in Asia on a regular basis. So there needs to be some sort of event, and that's the idea. They need some sort of local event where people can participate in the region. And the idea is that there should be open to being able to be hosted by a society that doesn't have an established disability sports program. Um, that you should make these small scale enough and kind of, you know, low budget enough that that they can be held anywhere. And that's partly why uh, you know, Nakamura makes the case that he held them in Oita for that reason um, in, in um, 1975. Uh, you know, part of it is also that he had a lot of connections and support there. I mean, at that point already, uh, you know, the, the Taiwanese was celebrating his 10th anniversary. That's part of the, the justification for holding them in 75 is it's a celebration of this 10th anniversary, 10 year anniversary. Uh, and so, uh, you know, this is... Um, in some ways, so it's meant to be that kind of regional games. Uh, and this is something you didn't have those. Um, those are new, uh, especially for people, athletes with disabilities. So it's just, that was just not an option. And in many places in the region, they're just this disability sports were not something that was kind of known, not something that's experienced. Uh, and so one of the other key points of, that Facebook is, is involved in kind of doing is, and this is true starting in 75 and it continues on after this. Uh, and in particular, this is where Japan's role really comes in, I think. Uh, is that they're going to provide funding for people to get to these events. Uh, and many cases provide funding that you're paying, the host site is actually paying for everybody's stays uh, and, and, and covering kind of costs of, of living expenses uh, while they're there. Uh, and so, you know, this is a way to get people that n- never probably would have a chance to participate in an international sports event like this to have that opportunity. Uh, and so that's something that from very intentionally from the beginning. Uh, and so that's, you know, that's one of the kind of ways in which this is, uh, a groundbreaking event, and it also fits with this kind of idea of Japan kind of expanding its soft power into this region. Of course, this is many of the regions, and I kind of point this out that like this is this is missing from many of the discussion. Of course, that but this is the region where you know the Japan's wartime empire had been, um, and nobody's talking about that uh, in '75, um, which isn't surprising in in the grand scheme. But um, but that's you know, but this is also kind of that part of that kind of we're peaceful now. We're we're, we're providing aid and support, uh, and so it's definitely part of that kind of bigger picture agenda. Uh, I think as well. Uh, and then the other part of this that's kind of really kind of pioneering is that FISPIC from the 1975 games on, 
they're one of the first international events where you actually have a multi-disability sports event held at the same site. I kind of mentioned this kind of in, in just passing uh, previously, but the, all the previous games before this were, um, again, the Paralympics or the Silk Manville games were people with uh, spinal cord injuries. So those were the athletes that were per permitted to participate in those games. In 64, they actually did something different in Japan. They had a separate event, an entire separate event. Um, that was for athletes with other types of disabilities to compete. Uh, and so that was kind of a separate event there. But in FISPIC, from the beginning, they combined this sort of kind of multi-disability event at the same venue. Uh, and this is the first time to do this. It's actually not the, the next time you see it happen, the Paralympics do this after this. Um, so this is, again, kind of a groundbreaking moment uh, for, for Paralympic sports uh, that, that is launched in Japan, pushed in many ways by uh, you know, Nakamura and several of the other key promoters in the Japanese context. Uh, and I would also, you know, one of the points I mentioned just, again, pa in passing in the book in some ways, is that Japan had had national disability sports events from 1964, actually 1963 is the first one, uh, 1964 on, um, that were also multi-disability. So this wasn't even, a, this wasn't new in Japan in 1975, that they'd been doing this at the national level. And this is, again, one of those ideas, you know, talking about the negative nationalism piece. This is where Japan often doesn't blow its own horn sometimes, um, except in a case like Facebook, where they actually are also marketing themselves as a site where come study disability sports here, study rehabilitation here from the region, and then we can kind of help you uh, spread that. Uh, and so, you know, there's lots of ways in which then the Facebook's evolved. And it's, it's a difficult event to organize uh, because you're talking about many of the places in the region. Again, they didn't have uh, disability sports programs. They didn't have people with access to wheelchairs. Uh, you know, even just kind of on a daily basis for their daily lives. So this is, they're probably not thinking about sports. And so just promoting a sporting event, getting people to these events is a challenge. Uh, finding hosts uh, is also a challenge and finding host sites. Uh, and so the early games are are kind of fraught with all this kind of struggle. It's kind of, in some ways, it seems miraculous that it even made it beyond kind of the first games, uh, you know, and especially, you know, they get to the fourth games and those are in Indonesia. Uh, and they're very kind of difficult because of there've been changes in the government and all sorts of other kind of tensions that kind of led to complications at the site. And uh, it sounds like, you know, all the accounts, again, we don't have very great records for some of these early events, uh, but the accounts that, that I was able to find of people talking about it, sounds like these were tough, um, right? The, the conditions were kind of Spartan uh, and, you know, the, the track is like a, it's a plowed road or it's a paved, newly paved road that sl slants down on the sides, uh, you know, and this is where they're having wheelchair races and things like that. So, uh, you know, so the early games are really difficult. And then you have this event in Kobe uh, in 1989. Kobe decides that they're going to host. Uh, and it's in some ways, it's a, again, this is another kind of fascinating story. And I met, ended up meeting several of the organizers um, that helped plan this event uh, while I was in Kobe a couple different times. Uh, and they actually had never heard of the event either. So it's not just you who hadn't heard of this event. So they're planning to organize the event. They had, didn't know this. It's, it's the, based in Japan, right? This, the organization that runs this is based in, in Oita. And the people in Kobe had never heard of it. Um, and they were just looking for a disability of sports event to host uh, to kind of as in honor of us. I forget what the occasion is in, in Kobe at that point. Uh, but there's a special they want to hold a, a big sports event because they've just held the university ad games uh, and they had new stadiums and things like this. They want to use them. Uh, and so uh, they go looking and they find this event. Uh, and what happens is that they take this these games, which had been struggling and they turn them into, I mean, I, I, again, looking back, it's pretty clear that this is the case. This is the transitionary moment um, where they turn them into an, a mega event. It goes from a struggling event uh, to become this mega event. And actually, you know, one of the, the other people that was involved in organizing it, she, she mentioned this fact that, um, that the Kobe saved the Facebook games uh, in many respects, that they didn't have a new host lined up. Um, so when they appeared uh, on the scene and agreed to host this, uh, it kind of like transformed the games. And it does, after this, what you see is the games keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. 
uh, and more and more expensive um, and more and more elite. I mean, this is where that moment of shift, it's, it's partly, this is, the IPC is actually happening right at the same time. It's forming at the same time the games are being held, literally. Uh, in fact, that's one of the complaints of the FeastPick organizing group is that they were not able to attend the IPC events uh, in, when they were held because uh, they were, had to be at the FeastPick games. Um, and, and so, so there's the, then you have the games then continue. They're hosted several times after that in, in different regions around, uh, around Asia. Uh, it's one of the you know the first disability sports events that China holds, for instance. Um, yeah, and um, Seoul had actually held the the ninety eight or nineteen eighty eight uh, Paralympics. Uh, so this was they weren't this wasn't the first games there, but they held, hold games uh, in Busan, uh, which have a big impact uh, on kind of disability in that region as well. And so the games continue up to two thousand six, and then they eventually end up getting replaced by what are now known as the Asian Para Games. They essentially kind of just dissolve the Facebook Games dissolve, and then the Para Games pick up. Uh, and so the the end of Facebook is um, I'm trying to think of how to kind of describe it without again without getting too far into the bureaucratic weeds of kind of the different organizations because it gets super complicated. Uh, but basically, you have the IPC has formed, um, and they they don't kind of have a clear sense of kind of what the structure is going to look like essentially of of their international structure for organizing disability sports. They really don't as they're starting out. Um, and so that's still taking shape. And the meanwhile, the kind of the Facebook games have been there before this, and they kind of continue on. And what ends up happening is essentially, as the IPC does begin to finally consolidate, um, they're creating organizations that are essentially doing the same thing that Facebook is doing, or are supposed to do. They actually don't, because they many of the people that are involved, would be involved in those organizations are actually involved in Facebook. Uh, and so, and there's, there seems to be, again, this is where it gets very difficult because there's, the records are spotty here, uh, very difficult to know kind of exactly what happens, but there was never this kind of like, well, Facebook could just become the IPC's organ, right? That, that appears to have been discussed, but kind of for whatever reason is kind of not how it goes. Uh, and so essentially you have it, the organizations decide we need to kind of combine forces because otherwise we're splitting if Facebook keeps trying to do its own thing and the IPC keeps trying to do its own thing in the Asian region then we're just going to be kind of dividing our dividing our resources um, you know it's mostly the same people uh, and so they decide they need to merge uh, and this is what leads to the end of Facebook um, what's remarkable is that as you kind of pointed out it disappears um, largely from from popular memory I mean you you google it and that you get just a couple of random hits um, you know the the Wikipedia page has started to get a little better um, but you know, back when I was first looking at this, there was nothing, you know, you get like a reference, a list of the games that was about the best you get, uh, you know, so stuff like that. Um, but, but this is, uh, and it, it even eventually kind of gets even erased by, from the, I, the APC initially was supposed to talk about this on their website. Um, and it's in their constitution. Uh, the APC has revised everything. And again, I, again, I don't know how much of this is intentional, how much of this is just, you know, things change, uh, and websites change. And, but it's gone. It's just disappeared. Um, and Facebook, you go look on the website, there's no references to it on APC's website anymore. Uh, and so there's that kind of like loss, uh, has and rapid, fairly rapid loss. Um, and so, you know, it's something that even in the, the international disability sports community, this is something, it's not an event that's well known. Um, and it's kind of remarkable that it's not because it, it does. It's, it's one of the oldest kind of regional games that exists. Uh, and again, Japan played a pioneering role here and didn't kind of didn't wasn't able to kind of market that kind of beyond kind of this period, uh, and and so it, you know it's a it's a question of legacy. Um, I think that's kind of where the last question you had asked about kind of what's the legacy here. Um, it, I don't know, right? It, it's the legacy is that I guess the Asian Para Games are the legacy uh, is kind of one one answer to that. The other is that um, it's it's kind of 
in some ways disturbing that it can be, it can just, you can lose something that's 30 years old uh, and that has, is an international organization um, that has done all this work uh, and had all these people involved in it. Uh, and just, it can just disappear. Uh, and so, you know, that to me was, was kind of when, when I was thinking about this is like, how do you lose something like this? Uh, and it's partly because when the games were being, were happening, disability sports in general was kind of not uh, on the scene, right. In terms of kind of people's mindsets, right. 75, really up to, you know, I think really up into the nineties in Japan, people weren't aware of this. The other thing is that if you take an event like this, and this is, I think one of the, the issues that I kind of, when I talk about kind of disability sports and their impact, it's a one-time event. Uh, and if you have a one-time event, unless you're very, very intentionally kind of thinking about legacy from the beginning and kind of working on maintaining that, it's not going to happen um, because the event happens and then stuff, ta other stuff happens. <laughs> uh, and then people just forget um, at the local site. And if, you know, if you're talking about an event in Indonesia and the Japanese press barely covered it in 75 in Oita, they're probably not sending a, you know, a team of reporters to, to Indonesia in, in the eighties. Um, and, and so, you know, that's, it's kind of a combination of all these factors that, that leads to it, to being forgotten. And then, like I said, then the, the organization that would be most likely to kind of maintain this for whatever reason has not. Uh, and so that's kind of, I think another part of this, uh, this story. Yeah. And I think in fairly stark contrast to this sort of weird memory holding, you know, unintentional, no doubt, but of, of Fispic, um, is the event that you talk about in chapter three, mm -hmm. uh, which is the uh, Oita wheelchair marathon. Now this kicks off in 81. So it's a little bit after Fispic, um, but it, it was then, and I think still is now, the world's largest international wheelchair-only distance race, uh, at least road race, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and so, um, it, you know, unlike FISPIC and unlike, frankly, the 64 Paralympics, I mean, it had, uh, you know, sustained government backing, major yep. corporate sponsors, uh, lots and lots of volunteers. And I think you said it gets like 200,000 spectators a year, which is just astonishing. Because, yeah. I mean... For, for, for listeners who are not familiar, I mean, Beppu is not a huge place. Mm -hmm. and it's not a small city either, but right. for an event to, to, for any event to get 200,000 mm -hmm. spectators is very impressive for, you know, a, a, a disability sports event in a, you know, decent sized provincial city to get. It's just, it really shocked me. I've said that number just blew me away. Yeah. Um, and so we, we've talked a little bit about the why Oita question, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, definitely Nakamura is is the is a big part of the answer there. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you want to add, add anything to that. But um, why a wheelchair marathon, right? Uh, and, and then <laughs> and then sort of how does that change over the years? Yeah. Um, and, you know, what is, again, sort of its, its legacy, its role um, in domestic and international disability sports? Um, and how does that fit into these larger issues, uh, including the um, elite versus rehabilitative issue? Um, right. Also, you talk about gender a little bit in, in the chapter, so I'd love yeah. if you could talk about that. Um, and, you know, also at the local level, right? What does it mean to Oita? So, there's, again, there's a lot sort of in these questions here, but right, I wonder right. if you could uh, flesh that out for us. Yeah, no, uh, th again, these are great. And feel free if I drop one to just jump in and, and let me know. Uh, so uh, I think, you know, first, why, why Oita? Again, it's partly, this is, this is Nakamura's brainchild. Um, this is right around the time where you're starting to see wheelchair marathons uh, or people in, competing in marathons in wheelchairs in other parts of the world. Uh, and so there have been some Japanese athletes that are competing. I think Hawaii uh, had a marathon where people were competing uh, in wheelchairs. Uh, and so that was fairly new uh, at that point. So this is kind of on, on the kind of edge in that sense. Um, uh, and then uh, why Oita also because, you know, and one of the things I look in this chapter is that the history of kind of this region is a place that ends up with a, a disproportionate number of medical facilities that are tied to rehabilitation because it's a hot spring region. 
um, in Japan and the military had used it. And then after the war, all those facilities are converted to just national hospitals. And so Beppu in particular, and, and Oita by the prefecture, Oita more generally, and Oita city too, to a certain extent, uh, becomes this site that's associated with all these national hospitals. Uh, and many of them are tied directly to rehabilitation uh, of kind of people with, with some sort of injuries. Uh, and so, you know, that's, that's another reason. And again, Nakamura kind of is on the scene. He becomes a doctor right as many of these transitions are, are happening. Uh, in, in the late kind of 50s. Uh, and so, you know, so that's that's a part of the story too. Uh, the other is that um, you have a governor and I'm, at the moment, I'm just blanking on his name. I should should have looked this up beforehand, um, but blanking on his name, a governor that's it's interested in kind of promoting essentially what a local products movement. Uh, and actually it's, he kind of becomes famous for this local products movement uh, in, in both in Japan and internationally. Uh, and so when Nakamura brings this idea to him, he's like, oh man, this is great, right? This is a chance for us, again, to kind of show the world that, that Oita is this special place. It's a special place within Japan. It's a special place internationally. This is a product that, that Japan can market. Uh, and that becomes very much the case. I mean, that's how it's approached. That's how he approaches it. Uh, that is how uh, a lot of people connected to the marathon kind of view it as this. This is a, a product of Oita that it kind of makes Oita unique. Uh, and, and it continues. I mean, this is advertised on the, you know, the tourist website in Oita. Um, as, a, as a, a kind of a yearly event. Uh, and so so that's kind of, again, part of the, the why Oita. Uh, how does it change over the years? I mean, that's a, a fascinating um, story, again, and I, they could probably spend the next hour just talking about that alone, uh, but but I won't. Uh, so uh, here's uh, the, the, the gist is that it starts off um, a, a wheelchair marathon because it, it's they were actually, there's a marathon that runs between Oita and Beppu, a, kind of a, a standard uh, non-disabled marathon that runs kind of on a regular basis. Uh, and they were like, oh, well, we can just do what these other marathons are doing. Uh, and we'll just kind of add wheelchair racers to that. Um, and so they approach the organizers and the organizers tell them, nope, you can't do that because according to the rules, you can only be in a marathon if you use your feet. Um, you can't use wheels. Uh, and so, you know, and this is again, you know, Nakamura is told no. And so what does he do? Well, he says, fine, then we'll just have our own marathon. Um, and at the time, a lot of people were kind of convinced that this is a bad idea because, you know, this is this is too long. And so they don't even the first two marathons are not actually full marathons. They're half marathons uh, because they, they can't justify. And they say, like, we it's too risky to have people in these marathons. It'd be a risk for the city to take on these kind of if, if somebody were to be injured or there's an accident or somebody were to get sick, um, then the city might be responsible for that. So so that's kind of one of the concerns. But what ends up happening, of course, is that Nakamura promotes this as rehabilitation. Um, he's like, no, this is perfectly healthy. And in fact, he becomes kind of a champion for marathoning. He's, he's one of the first people to kind of do studies on marathons and kind of take these to international committees and say, like, look, uh, this is actually good for people uh, with disabilities to do marathons. And so it's showing the medical benefits. And then eventually they get this converted into, they add a, a full marathon and they maintain the half marathon. Uh, and so this is one of the things you see these kind of elements and the inclusivity aspect kind of continuing. I mean, the marathon's fa fascinating because you have um, the world's top athletes come to this event. And they have, and that was the very first marathon, they made this international, intentionally invited the world's best athletes to come to Oita to participate in this, uh, paid their way for these athletes to come. So again, it's kind of, and then also paid for many athletes to come from other parts of the region using, again, ties to FISPIC. Uh, so these also kind of overlap in that sense as well. Uh, but you know, so having this marathon, the best athletes in the world competing there, and then alongside that, particularly in the half marathon, you have you know somebody that's 14, 
because they had age restrictions at one point and they just kept lowering them and lowering them and lowering them. And so you have, I don't even know if they have an age restriction now, I think. Um, so, and there's definitely not a top age limit because there's some 90 year olds. Um, there's one guy, when I went and saw it, I think it was 2016, I saw a marathon um, and there was somebody who was 90 something and he'd, he'd participated in like almost all but one of the marathons. Um, and he's participating, again, attending this event alongside the world record holder um, and alongside, you know, the people that won the the, para, the Paralympic marathon at the last Paralympics. So, you know, this is a fascinating event. Um, and in terms of the wheelchair, international wheelchair community, it is a, a unique event, a kind of a one of a kind event, um, you know, talking to people and reading kind of people's accounts of this event. They talk a lot about how like coming to Oita is like coming home. Um, and, and they're superstars. They, you come to Oita and like, you get you get invited to go to schools and give talks at schools and uh, you know these things that like you wouldn't have happen in many other places and so this is part of what makes it appealing and it's also you know one of the things that I think is is fascinating about that is it does represent disability to a very wide segment of of Oita's population local population I mean this is something again whether it changes attitudes or not is hard to say but what what you see is that there's exposure and that it's not unusual for people to see people in wheelchairs in Oita. Um, and, and so, you know, and then there is some accessibility issues too. I mean, there, there's parts of the city that have definitely been, been kind of converted to be more accessible for people in wheelchairs. There's lots of parts that are not uh, uh, still to this day. Um, but, you know, that's, you know, kind of a, a, a kind of another kind of side of that. Uh, other elements of this marathon that are, um, oh, the uh, amateur elite divide. I mean, part of that, again, is that the half marathon has kept it kind of an amateur event. In many ways, it's a gateway event for a lot of people. This is where they get, they you know, they have an injury and they they want to take on sports, so they might enter the marathon. Uh, and so there's a lot of stories you hear read of, about people that like their first race was in Oita or their first race is another marathon that's similar to this, right? Because you also now have many more marathons uh, that have kind of emerged uh, and more opportunities um, than was the case in the past. Uh, but so that's kind of the the amateur gateway kind of is is one of the key things here. But that it is, it's very much an elite event. Um, and the very first marathon, there's this famous story where uh, there was a tie or the, the two two people are coming in at the, at the finish uh, and they want to they want to join hands. They want to roll across the finish line together as a symbol of kind of the friendship uh, and kind of uh, that this event is supposed to symbolize. Uh, and, and it's Nakamura who actually says, no, we have to have a winner uh, because this is a competition. You know, it, it has to have a winner. Uh, and so they, somebody's wheel went across the line first. And so they named that and that, that, you know, this creates a controversy and the press force jumps on it. Cause, um, it's a great story. Right. Um, but so this is, you know, from the beginning it's that, that, that tension that we are kind of touched on is there, um, you know, this is competition elite, um, but also not, um, and also kind of tied to this rehabilitation. It, it, so it does still have kind of, uh, and in fact, one of the things that looking at the coverage of it. It's really only very recently that they've dropped some of the rehabilitation language uh, and marathon coverage. Uh, and I guess recently, I mean, this is a long running event. So, you know, I'm thinking like within the last 10 years, uh, you've seen that kind of drop. So, uh, so that's, that's a, and that was a fairly kind of significant shift. It is also a fascinating uh, and kind of very rich event in terms of, uh, you mentioned kind of gender uh, and other uh, aspects of kind of inclusivity. Uh, it's had, women have been competing in this event since the beginning. Um, and so, and, and actually, um, there's several years where Japanese women have just dominated the race. Um, uh, and Tsuchida Wakako, who I mentioned uh, in the, in the book, um, in, in later chapters is, is somebody who actually has a world, holds the world record, uh, in, in Oita uh, at one point. Uh, and so then that of course, because you have a Japanese racer winning that generates more publicity uh, in the national media coverage. Uh, and this leads to kind of, you know, kind of more interest in some ways, uh, in that sense. Uh, 
And so that's, you know, a, a fascinating moment. There's all sorts of ways in which the, the they, they've started awarding prizes. And so initially some of the prizes uh, were kind of differentiated by gender, and then they've kind of equalized those. Um, they're also, Oita is one of the few races that's left uh, in the world, actually, where they actually have uh, competitions, international competition for, for athletes who have different classifications. And so one of the complicated things about disability sports is there's all sorts of classification systems. And I intentionally did not kind of get into that much in the book. Um, but, uh, but it is kind of a, a key aspect of disability sports internationally, and it actually generates a lot of controversy. Uh, because many of the people with classifications, which means they have higher levels of impairment, which means it's, it's harder for them to go as fast, um, have their races have been cut uh, at an international stage. Uh, and so OITA is one of the few places where you can actually compete at these different, at these higher levels of, of classification. Uh, and so, uh, you know, that makes it kind of unique. It also, though, has created, as one of the things I point out, is that there's some discrepancies between um, the, the prize winnings. Uh, and in some ways, they can get away with it because, um, you know, they, they have to attract the lead athletes at these other classification levels because they have to attract them. Because OITA is, as you kind of pointed out, is not a place that you just end up going to, um, right? It's, it's not on the beaten path. You have to, it takes an effort to get there. Uh, and so you've got to bring these athletes there. Uh, and so because some of these athletes are, are, don't have many other options, they, they come to OITA. Um, and that's not the case for the, the, the other classifications. Uh, and so this is kind of one of the, the tensions, again, that I think you see uh, in the marathon, which is not, it's not unique to the OITA marathon in any sense. Uh, it kind of reflects kind of broader uh, patterns uh, in general. Uh, and part of it is that, you know, they're spending a lot of money now on prize money. Uh, and if you look at this, just the sheer amount of money being spent on prizes, and if this is, you're thinking about this in terms of kind of the older idea of this marathon was to open the gateway for more people to participate. Well, you're, you could take that money and spend it on wheelchairs and you open up the door for a lot of people. I mean, so, and that's, again, that's not a unique kind of issue in OITA. I think that's a broader kind of tension uh, in disability sports more generally. Uh, so yeah, so OITA reflects a lot of kind of bigger, bigger patterns. Uh, and what does it mean for OITA, I guess, was your final question, right? So uh, so OITA at the local level, it, it is, it's a, it's an event. Um, and it was fast. I'm, I'm really glad I got a chance to go, uh, cause it, it actually falls right at the end of my academic term every year. And so I'm almost never able to go. So I had to leave and I was able to go, uh, and to, to just be there and to see it. I mean, it's an event where people, people stay at the start and then they run to another section because the way the course is set up, it loop, it does all these loops. Uh, and you'll see just people just running all over the place to go see different different parts of the course, um, and they'll stand there and cheer, uh, you know. And it's it's um, there's uh, baseball teams, little league teams that cheer from this one bridge, and their uniforms are all lined up. Uh, it's a it's just this it's a it's a great event uh, in in some ways, uh, and you can just imagine how as an athlete this probably does feel really great uh, to have all these people cheering for you, you know, signs in English and Japanese, and um, yeah. So uh, I mean. And it is, I think, something that has had an impact on the region in terms of thinking about accessibility, thinking about these issues. If nothing else, as I point out in the book, uh, you know, whatever the impact in terms of, um, you know, accessibility, it's a constant reminder that every year you're going to have, you know, 100, 200, maybe even up one year they had, I think, 400 some participants coming in in wheelchairs. And you have to figure out what that means for your, your community. Uh, and so this is a, a recurring thing. And that's un unusual. This, most disability sports events are these one-offs. And so this is what's, what's unique and kind of has, has had a big impact in some ways. Yeah. So in, the, um, in chapter two, uh, you talked about, you know, FISPIC uh, mm -hmm. as this kind of uh, um, having its turning point in mm -hmm. uh, 1989. And you also talked about how that coincides with uh, the, um, the Paralympic Committee being formed. 
Uh, and so it's sort of interesting to me in, you know, chapter four, uh, you get a, a decade later, mm-hmm. uh, 1998 to be specific, the, the winter Paralympics in Nagano. I have to say, like, even as somebody who has, you know, some peripheral notion of the, of disability sports, uh, the, the, the winter disability sports, I think are even less well known and yeah. less, you know, sort of, uh, they get less attention. Uh, I mean, I think that may be true for the, the, summer versus winter games mm-hmm. anyway. But, um, but so this was sort of interesting for me, you know, cause 98 was maybe, uh, was a time when I was, you know, thinking a lot about Japan. I just, just was graduating that year and mm-hmm. you know, whatever. Um, and so, you know, this is this 98 winter Paralympics, um, you put, you situate this as a, as, as another turning point in the mm-hmm. history, but here it's for the normalization of disability sports in Japan. Yeah. Um, and you're contrasting that, especially with uh, 64, um, and these other events that you're talking about. Um, so what's different about Nagano? Mm-hmm. Um, and the, you know, this, this, uh, particularly this, what's the turning point, right? I mean, I think you're arguing that there's this shift away from rehabilitation again, that's happening here. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but how is that specifically, um, you know, coming through in this context? Mm-hmm. Um, and how does this fit into then the longer history of disability sports, uh, in Japan and Japan's engagement with, uh, disability sports in the world? Yeah. Uh, again, uh, great, great questions. And I think, um, one of the, the things to, to note is that uh, this is the first, one of, or not the first, but one of the early games where the IPC is actually in charge uh, of kind of organizing international, because they, they, there's a transition and they, they take over at a certain point, uh, the uh, different kind of uh, running different games. And so this is one of the early games. Uh, and so one of the, the points I make in this chapter is that uh, this in some ways kind of solidifies the IPC's positions in many ways. Uh, so there's also a way, you know, besides, aside from kind of the turning point in Japan, I think there is a way in which this also fits with kind of Tokyo or, or Japan's role and Nagano's role in kind of uh, solidifying the position of the IPC and kind of helping them kind of develop greater coordination with the IOC. Uh, and so there's there's ways in which it also plays out at the international level. Uh, but kind of in the kind of domestic level, what were, you see in Nagano that's different, I mean, if, if nothing else, it's time. Um, you know, Tokyo 64, they didn't have a lot of time to organize, as we kind of touched on already. This event, they're actually talking about the Paralympics um, and hosting the Paralympics before they were even awarded the, the Olympic Games. Um, you know, so this is actually part and parcel of kind of the discussions very early on. And that, that, changed, that changes everything. Um, I mean, <clears throat> excuse me. Then you also see uh, there is a much greater, there's not, they're not jointly host or not jointly kind of coordinated games. There's not a joint bidding process yet. That doesn't happen until Tokyo uh, uh, later on down the road. Um, but, but this is an event where they, you do see the organizing, the Olympic Games Organizing Committee and the Paralympic Games Organizing Committee working much more closely together. And so that fact alone also kind of means that, um, so when you're building the athlete's village, you're talking about accessibility from the early stages. Um, and so you're thinking about those issues before the building is built, not retrofitting everything, you know, you know five days beforehand. Uh, and so, so th- there's stuff like that that, you know, is, is a huge piece of, of why we see kind of some of the shifts here. Uh, but there is also shifts uh, in terms of um, the attitudes towards sports uh, and, and towards, I mean, part of it, again, we've kind of touched on is that this is the moment where you see in Japan this, this narrative of, this is this is about competition. This is not about um, rehabilitation, and explicitly being kind of referenced repeatedly in the promotional literature by the athletes. Uh, you're even seeing some of that in the media. The media is kind of more mixed um, in terms of its coverage of this. Uh, 
And so, uh, but, but, but especially kind of at the, at the institutional side and on the athlete side, this is about a competition. This is not about us kind of recovering from, uh, you know, injuries and things like that. Uh, we're, we're, if not professional, there's some of the athletes at this point actually are be essentially professional. Um, but, but you actually, if they're not professional, they are elite, right? And that's kind of one of the things you're seeing. And so that's a pretty dramatic shift as well. And again, it's an intentional shift uh, in the marketing materials and things like that. Uh, you also see, this is the first games where they actually charge tickets, charge for tickets, uh, and they sell them, they sell out. Um, and so, you know, this is one of the things I, I make a point that like this demonstrated that even in an event like the, the Paralympics, the Winter Paralympics, which most people don't know about, you can sell the tickets. Um, and, and they also do, uh, the, they use the, a promotion, a similar promotion to what they did for the schools, for the, in schools in the Olympic Games in, in Nagano. They do something similar with the Paralympic Games. They're pairing up schools with different kind of, as host cities and host schools tied to different countries and things like that, kind of connecting them to athletes. Uh, and um, the other thing that's kind of institutionally kind of fascinating here, and, and part of where this connects back to FISPIC is some of the organizers that are involved in Nagano were actually kind of organizers for FISPIC. And so, you know, again, there's, it's hard to pull direct threads, but, but there's some interesting things that happen in FISPIC that you see happen in Nagano uh, in terms of the promotion activities and stuff like that, that it's like, hmm, you know, I, I wonder if that was somebody who said, ooh, that worked, let's try this here. Uh, you know, and it, the timeframes work. They, I mean, they, they would have finished up the FISPIC games right around the, then Kobe, right around the time um, that these games were kind of really kind of beginning to kind of launch their planning efforts. Uh, you also see kind of major sponsorships here. Uh, and again, partly that that's something you saw that in Colbase Facebook, they managed to figure out how to get sponsorships and you see them do something here in, in Nagano as well. Um, you also see uh, expansion of media coverage. I mean, I mentioned media kind of in terms of it's how it's representing people and athletes is, is kind of maybe still kind of mixed kind of coverage, but expansion of coverage is dramatic here. Uh, and, you know, one of the things I look at in this chapter, I do a lot of attention to the media in that chapter, in part because it is seen as such a turning point in media coverage. And so I kind of like, well, that's often said, but nobody's actually looked at what that means. And so looking at kind of how the coverage changes and why. And one of the biggest ways is just in sheer numbers and amount of coverage. Uh, you just see many more articles being produced. Um, this is much expanded television coverage of the games. This is also, uh, and this is something I didn't know at the time when I first started looking, I kind of stumbled on this, literally stumbled on it at the National Diet Library, like found, a, found an article that this is one of the first games where they were like they were webcast essentially. Um, I mean, it, the technology was still pretty rudimentary by, by you know, standards of today, but this is one of the first ones where they're actually attempting to kind of broadcast events. And in part because they couldn't get mainstream media coverage. And so they're experimenting with this. And so, you know, that's remarkable. Again, Japan is doing something kind of unique here. Uh, in terms of disability sports, this is also an event where you see them uh, incorporating athletes with uh, um, mental impairments uh, as well. Uh, intellectual disabilities. Uh, and so uh, so you're seeing kind of different groups of people, again, being brought in, kind of expanding this idea of what athlete means uh, and who can compete. Uh, and so this is, a, again, a groundbreaking moment for the Paralympic movement in general, uh, but also in, in a Japanese context. Uh, you also see, um, especially in the aftermath of these games, there's a lot of kind of uh, inertia, kind of the, gen the popular interest that gets generated by the games and the media and kind of the Japanese athletes do really well, in part because they were they got a lot of money and they recruited heavily for these events. And so you end up having, I mean, this is kind of one of the, the controversial things that sometimes gets documented in the, the media. You know, you have events where the Japanese win like so many medals in these events. But then you look at it like, well, it's because there were, you know, there were four athletes and three of them were Japanese. Um, but, but uh, you know, I make the point, well, yes, uh, you know, that means that three of them would have probably, two, at least two of them would have won medals. Um, but, but it also means that they recruited um, and that they actually were able to get athletes uh, and that they trained them um, for this event. Uh, and that's something that a lot of places clearly couldn't do. 
Uh, and, and so that's kind of, you know, remarkable in and of itself. And so there's a lot of effort put into that. Uh, and then that, that, is, um, that momentum kind of continues uh, after these games end. Uh, and what you see is um, there's, you know, committees that are formed. And this is where, you know, th- when I talk about the mainstreaming of disability sports, a lot of the stuff that, that I talk about in the last chapter that happened in the lead up to Tokyo got its start after Nagano. Uh, some of the kind of transitions and government approaches to how they're going to organize disability sports and versus kind of able uh, or non-disabled sports. And, uh, and so this is kind of these different kind of ways of thinking about structures and things like that. They start here. Um, at the same time, funding, and this is one of the things that happens, and this, this is you know, one of the concerns with, with Tokyo's stuff coming up, the funding just drops after the game's end. Uh, you know, so all this money that had been poured into this event kind of just dissipates and disappears. Uh, and in some ways, you, you see kind of media bubbles, and that's one of the things I talked about with the media coverage. Uh, the other part of this is that this is also an, an event that is tied into more explicitly, uh, like from the beginning, uh, the accessibility question uh, is central to this. Um, and, and part of what I, what I show in this chapter is that that is very much tied in part to kind of the, in some ways, the Paralympic movement was kind of on board with that in general, um, but it it takes a particular valiance in the Japanese context because of the aging population that is already being talked about. And it was, and you were already seeing some of this in, you know, in, uh, I talked about this in the Kobe games, there was some attention to kind of questions of accessibility. Um, in Nagano, it's very explicit. Um, and they're, they're tying this to kind of broader issues beyond the world of sport, beyond the kind of stadiums. Uh, and, and you have, you know, the athlete's village is actually converted to housing afterwards. Um, and so, you know, some of these are then, that means these are essentially accessible facilities. And I, I, again, I kind of stumbled across uh, an account of um, someone not, not at all tied to the Paralympics that ends up kind of getting access to one of these apartments. Uh, and so this is part of, I think, a broader shift in Japan that's happening uh, in, in general. This is something, you know, I don't know, uh, Mark uh, Bookman is kind of working on some projects related to disability in the post-war period. And I think some of this, his stuff is kind of is kind of going to really give us new insights into some of that stuff that's happening. But, you know, there is a lot of involvement in Japan. The Asian, uh, the Asian and Pacific decade disabled persons is happening. Um, and Japan is very invested in that. Um, you've had the international decade of disabled persons. Uh, I forgot to mention the marathon was also launched in, you know, international year of the disabled person, right? 81. That was partly another reason why that was launched. Uh, but so, you know, Japan is very invested in those international campaigns tied to the UN. Again, it's part of this kind of international, we need to kind of demonstrate that we're kind of on board with the international community. Uh, and so you're, you're also seeing, I think, the disability rights movement in Japan has gained a lot of momentum uh, by the time you get to 98. Uh, and so you're seeing increasing kind of promotion of things like independent living movement uh, has, has started to really gain speed in Japan. And so, so those, there's groups that are connected with that that use the, the, the Nagano games as kind of a, 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 a kind of, um, an amplifier, I guess, right. For, for their, for their message, right. This is a, this, they see this as an opportunity to kind of reach a much broader audience that they might not reach. Uh, and so, you know, I think that, that that's another reason why this is, you know, significant in, in, in the broader sense, even beyond kind of the world of sports. Yeah. And without being sort of overly teleological, I mean, I think it's fair to say that, you know, all of this, which we've talked about up till now, leads us very directly in a lot of ways to uh, the Tokyo 2020 slash 2021 games, which you talk about in chapter five. Uh Um, And uh, so so you you write in in this chapter uh, one point that some of the biggest developments for Tokyo 2020 stemmed from institutional changes at the international and national levels. And so just to start off, I'd like I'd like to think about what those are, like what were those changes um, and, and what were their results? Yeah, that, that's great. Um, and specifically, I mean, what I'm talking about there is um, 
uh, you know, at the international level, it's the, the fact that the IOC and the IPC si sign a series of com joint commitments. Uh, and and the, the key takeaway from that is that essentially this becomes a joint bidding process. It, you know, up to this point, it had essentially been the Paralympics were a voluntary add-on event. Um, you weren't required to do it. Um, that, and that's th another th remarkable thing about 64. Nobody told them they had to do this. Um, this is Japan chose to do this uh, and that the organizers chose to take this on. Uh, back in 64. Uh, and in fact, it's not until 1988 that the games are held then again in the same Olympic city, right? So that's, a, you know, it's not until the, the age and other games in Asia and the Seoul that it happens again. So, um, you know, that's kind of a, you know, a key point. And so, but now the games, by the time you get to Tokyo 2020, and they, as they're bidding, and even before they're bidding, this is a joint process. Uh, and so that's that's one of the kind of key things you have to you now have to host the, the Paralympics. You have to talk about how you're going to kind of think about issues of accessibility directly in the bidding process. You've got to make that part of your pitch. Uh, and so that that has a huge impact um, on, on the bidding process. You're also seeing the, at the, the national level, again, I think some of the, the bad patterns I was talking about before with kind of Japan's involvement in these international movements and kind of uh, that continues. Uh, and I think you see disability, you see new disability policies, kind of a new disability laws, new kind of revisions of existing laws that kind of come on the books. Um, and that's that's happening before the games. Um, in some ways, you know, I think it's it's a question, you know, it's the games are surely kind of part of it, but it's not the only thing, right? There's these other kind of factors that are playing out there, too. Uh, and so that's another kind of piece that's kind of happening as well. You're also seeing direct integration of uh, non-disabled and, and disability sports happening in uh, in the Japanese context, right? They they rewrite the up up to this point they'd essentially been kind of controlled by separate ministries of uh, within the Japanese government, uh, and so you see them integrated uh, under one kind of ministry now, and it it kind of creates a kind of much more unified approach. It changes the way things are being funded. Um, you're, and it's written into the sports law, uh, you know, talking about kind of, it's not just kind of, uh, we're, this, it's sports for all. And that's often been kind of the phrase that's used, but now it's actually in some ways accurate, right? Or at least it's ideally it's accurate, more accurate than it was, I guess, is maybe a better way to phrase it. Um, but this, so this is kind of, this is a, another big shift. And again, a lot of this is happening before 2020. And in some ways it's partly because Japan had been bidding on the Olympics and the Paralympics well before this, right? You go back to, you know, Osaka uh, and, you know, and then there was the earlier bid for Tokyo and then this finally successful bid. So, you know, I do look at kind of those earlier bids and kind of look at kind of the trajectory and you can see a, a, a change in kind of the attitudes towards the Paralympics and kind of how they're talking about it. You know, in Osaka, it was still kind of almost an add-on event. Uh, but in, you know, by the time you get, but in Yokohama, which was also bidding for those games actually was directly talking about it. So, you know, so kind of a fascinating kind of way in which you can kind of track how the the Paralympics is kind of being connected to the Olympics in, in direct ways within a Japanese context. Uh, but also, um, yeah, and I think I think the other piece of this is, you know, you can't ignore uh, the growing demographic uh, issues in Japan that are driving much of this discussion about kind of disability, kind of aging and kind of accessibility, barrier-free environments. This is this is central to kind of so much of what is happening in, in preparation for Tokyo. So So those are all kind of changes that are happening at different places in Japan internationally. Uh, and, and again, I think that the emphasis on kind of competitive sport has just has become even more kind of the case. I think the overwhelming uh, majority of athletes in, are, are kind of more and more towards professional uh, athlete status. Uh, you know, if not, then there's still sports where they aren't, but, but there's a lot of athletes now that like it would be hard to compete without being a professional uh, at this elite level. 
Yeah, one of the other things that you do in this chapter, uh, you're continuing your sort of interest in media and promotion and the way the way that the games is presented, um, is you you take a look at the uh, Tokyo Paralympics catchphrase uh, "athletes first, mm-hmm. right, and show the way that that's uh, reflected in the marketing and promotion strategies which highlight the Paralympians themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in your chapter, you have five uh, bios, these biographical sketches of Japanese uh, Paralympians. Um, and the one of them that I'd, I'd love if you could talk about is Sato Mami. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she gave a speech at the IOC session in Buenos Aires in 2013, which uh, is, seems to have been credited for helping cement Tokyo's bid to host uh, both the Olympics and the Paralympics. As you point out, that's a joint mm-hmm. bid. Um, and so this is uh, first shows up and you know, she first shows up in the epigraph for the chapter. Um, so I'd love it if you could read that and then talk a little bit about her. Mm-hmm. And if there's somebody else that you'd also like to talk about, uh, you know, one of the other Olympians, that's also, of course, uh, great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, give me one second here. I'll try and open it up here. Um, OK, so here this is and this is not me. The, me this is me reading from her statement, of course. So uh, I am Mami Sato and I am here because I was saved by sport. It taught me the values that matter in life, the values that Tokyo 2020 is determined to promote worldwide. Sato Mami. So yeah, this is, and the thing to note here, she was the first speaker. Um, so this is a, you know, she's, this is her opening statement. This is um, how the bid for Tokyo is opening. And, and she is a, an athlete. Um, she was a, a student uh, at Waseda when I, I believe, um, I believe she was a student at Waseda at this point, when she uh, was diagnosed with cancer, ended up uh, losing her, her leg. And then gets involved um, in, in some ways kind of almost accidentally uh, in disability sports. She kind of, you know, finds out she's kind of looking for something to do. She was a cheerleader. She was super active, super athletic, you know, all the way through high school. Uh, and then is is looking for something to do after the, her uh, her surgery. Uh, and so she ends up kind of initially kind of getting interested in swimming, but then gets drawn into track and field, um, ends up qualifying for the, the Paralympics. Kind of, again, it's kind of this whole sequence of events. Uh, and and I, you know, her story in some ways reflects a lot of other athlete stories uh, in some ways, like it's kind of, they're drawn in by, you know, a local connection, or they hear about some event from somebody who, you know, a, a doctor or a specialist or something, uh, or there's a, there's a facilities nearby that they kind of find out has these opportunities to do events. Uh, and so they get involved that way. Uh, and so, you know, that's, that's a fairly common, uh, you know, thread, I think, for a lot of the kind of athletes that I, that I looked at. Um, but uh, in any case, so she ends up kind of competing. Um, and is becomes the face for for Tokyo's bid um, in some ways because she had actually published several accounts of her her life up to that point um, becomes kind of you know she is travels around is giving talks and stuff like that so you know she's she's not um, the the winningest athlete uh, which is kind of what's what's fascinating about her and you know it's one of those things uh, you know my first book I talked about sports celebrity and so this is kind of intriguing for me on so many levels. Uh, you know, like, what is it about celebrity? Because um, it's not about winning, clearly, because there are athletes who have won more uh, races and events and things like that that didn't weren't the spokespeople. Uh, and so uh, but but she ends up kind of um, then changing sports. She 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 has married now uh, goes by uh, uh, Tani Mami uh, and um, and has now taken up a different sport. She was a long jumper uh, before and has now taken up a different board triathlon. Uh, and so in the lead up to the 2020 games, um, I remember being in Tokyo 
uh, doing research uh, and, you know, being at a restaurant and seeing her a documentary being about her training for the, the triathlon. So she was, again, featuring featuring in the media uh, in the lead up to that. Um, and then there was a big kind of like, oh, like in the media, uh, a big to do because it was announced that her classification category was cut. Uh, from the games um, and so if she was going to compete because she was like a favored to, to win her probably her first medal uh, at the Olympics in Tokyo uh, and then her classification category was cut and so she's going to have to compete in a, in a, a kind of more difficult category uh, and so this you know the, what she was it was, wasn't sure if she's going to be able to compete at all uh, and so then I think it was announced the last I had read anyway uh, that, that she was going to be able to but it was going to be in this this class, classification category which was going to be harder to win a medal and more people kind of competing uh, and so, you know, this is, again, her, the story is still unfolding. Um, and I said in the book, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if, uh, if you know, there isn't, and I haven't looked recently, I should actually, uh, if there isn't a new biography coming out uh, about her, uh, her experiences, kind of our new version or new updated version, because after she gave her speech, of course, a new edition of her previous biography came out with the speech added at the end, um, you know, to it. Uh, and so this becomes, it, you know, th there's so many ways in which this kind of is, is fascinating. And it is, it's a, an example of kind of how, the athletes have gone from, you know, like I said, in 64, they were not um, part of the story, right? They, there's definitely some coverage of the athletes, uh, but they're the, the main people talking are the promoters, are the, the people that were interested in this kind of rehabilitation narrative. Uh, but then, and now you have this situation where the athletes themselves have been central to the marketing process, have been central to the bidding process, have been central to the organization process. Uh, and, you know, you have, it is a joint bid. It's, a, it's quite intentionally, and the committee is a joint organizing committee. I mean, the language is the Tokyo Olympics and Paralympics. And don't not say the Paralympic part because you'll get scolded. Um, and, and so, you know, that's very, very intentional. Uh, and, and, but it is also like, that means that you do have Paralympic athletes that are much more directly involved in the kind of planning stages and discussions and promotion than it was, has ever been the case. You know, and I think, again, some of this is grow, building on what had happened in Nagano. Uh, and some of this is kind of new, um, you know, and I think they're the other athletes I talk about. Um, I, I kind of do a survey of, of kind of athletes that go from 64. Um, I, I actually had a chance to interview one of the people who participated in the 64 games, uh, Suzaki Katsumi. Um, and, you know, his story is fascinating in part because he literally didn't know what the Paralympics were and is in the hospital and, and Nakamura or pro probably Nakamura or like one of Nakamura's kind of Co uh, people comes to him and says, you're going to do this essentially. Um, and you're going to do these events. Um, and because, you know, this is for re your rehabilitation, it's good for you. Uh, and, you know, one of the great stories he shared with me is the fact that most of his training, he did, a, he did a swimming event. Most of his training had been in the, the hot tubs, the hot baths, right? The, the onsen uh, recovery sites in, in the hospital. And so he gets to Tokyo for the games and, and the water's cold. Um, you know, it's, it's so there's this just a very, very different experience. And, and you know, so his experience, but he also, um, you know, for him, the Paralympics were this kind of moment where he could, uh, you know, suddenly he was thinking he's going to be, he said, you know, he thinking he's going to be in the hospital. Um, and now he sees for himself something different and seeing kind of people out. Uh, and then what he said is like the most important thing, it wasn't necessarily the games because that was great. But he got a job after this, um, and then you know that was part of his life. But the other point I kind of connected to this is that he he also is it was still active. I mean, he participated in the FISPIC games. He participated in in like wheelchair basketball uh, in in uh, Taiyonuye because he worked at Taiyonuye in Beppu. Uh, and and then um, you know and then he ends up kind of he was still when I interviewed him at the time uh, he was still like you know going to the local park and like you know doing like ten ks. Uh, and I'm like you know I don't do ten ks. Um, 
you know, and so you know, this is this is amazing that he's still he was so active um, and and kind of that it was sports were definitely part of his life. Uh, and that's, you know, a part of the, the one of the things that I kind of wanted to kind of at least I wish I had been able to get into more um, and didn't part because I was focused on these big events is that for a lot of people, that's the level of sports that that they're interested in. And that's what matters is that kind of recreational kind of access to those opportunities. Uh, and that's where it sometimes gets kind of fuzzy when you get into these big events. Um, you spend a lot of money to organize these things. Uh, and, you know, but then what what does that mean for people, you know, that aren't in a place like Oita where you have access to all these kind of facilities and things like that? Like if you're in, um, you know, I spent some time in Iwate and I know you have too, like in Morioka, mm-hmm. like do they have facilities like this? And honestly, I don't know, right? Um, um, so, you know, that's the, the type of things that, that you know, I, again, I wish I'd had been able to dig into more. Maybe maybe it's an, another kind of uh, essay at some point I can kind of work on. Yeah, and I think I mean I think that's really interesting because it seemed to me that um, sort of recreational sport or mm-hmm. uh, lifelong sport uh, are parts of the narrative that you know, as you said, sort of you know, get a little bit lost in thinking about the mega event mm-hmm. side of things. Uh, and that I think is true whether you're talking about disability sports or not, mm-hmm. right? And so, right. you know, when, whenever you're throwing money at you know these huge events and developing you know uh, elite athletes, or whenever you're doing it for some sort of medical or rehabilitative purpose, you're kind of forgetting about you know those of us who like you know go to the park in the morning and do a few pull-ups and mm-hmm. you know or like or run, you know like my dad used to run you know for health, they're like just go out and climb a mountain or you know. Right. And and that's such a big part of the story of sports that mm-hmm. it seems like that'd be a really interesting thing to follow up on. So I'm I'm, I'm glad that that's uh, potentially in, in the in the future there. Um, before we get to to, to talk, talking about future research, uh-huh. though, you do have a, a coda to your book, I do, uh, which yeah. I wanted to. Yeah, I wanted to, <laughs> to talk about this because um, you pulled a fast one on me here. You you, you the, the title of the look because I mean the title of the coda is the 2021 problem, and and I really thought that this was going yeah. to be something entirely different because yeah. right now we have a 2021 problem, yeah, which yeah. is obviously not the one that you were thinking of when you were writing the book because right. it hadn't occurred yet. But you know, as a reader, I was, I, I felt like you had, you know, pulled, pulled a fast one on me here. So tell us what the 2021 problem is. Yeah, no. And I should, I should probably explain. So, uh, you know, one of the things about this book is that, uh, it, I, it was literally in the final, final like stages. Um, I think I was able to add like a sentence, um, that says something like, I don't know what's coming, um, in my author's note. Um, you know, and, and so, you know, I had no idea when I, then this went into the final stages, what it was gonna, what was going to be happening. They hadn't even postponed, uh, when I kind of sent stuff in. Um, and so, uh, you know, and then, then stuff, you know, everything got kind of haywire, uh, all over the world. So, uh, so the 2021 problem is actually a reference to, uh, a, a discussion that was happening again in the lead up to 2020, in the scholarly kind of community around kind of disability sports in Japan. And they were thinking about kind of this, and in uh, also in the kind of disability sports community, not just the academic side, but kind of other people thinking and promoters, uh, thinking about this question of the bubble uh, that comes with these big mega events uh, and thinking about, um, you know, and again, I start off the coda by kind of documenting kind of my experience in, in 2011 when I first came to this, to, to the organization that's tasked with kind of disability sports in Japan. And then when I was there in 2017, completely different kind of experiences. Um, and so like, and that, you know, partly kind of when I was thinking about that, I was like, that was so true. It was such a kind of moment of like, oh my gosh, like there has been kind of this flush of cash uh, into the disability sports kind of programs. 
Um, and what's going to happen? A lot of it is going to go away. I mean, that's pretty clear. And there's there's specific reasons for that that I won't get into now. But uh, but but one of them is that the the Nippon Foundation has has donated tons and tons of money uh, into the disability sports community and kind of promotion. Uh, and that was only set to go through 2020. <laughs> uh, it's going to expire in 2021, which is again part of why this 2021 problem is there. And so there was discussion of kind of what, how do we continue this? How do we continue to kind of keep promoting the student supports? How do we build on, maintain the legacy, maintain these developments, maintain interest? Um, and, and even more than that, how do you keep promoting it when you don't have a Paralympics anymore to keep working towards? Um, and, uh, you know, so some of the, the chapters um, that are people that I'm referencing in there are, are kind of key people in kind of the disability sports program or programs and kind of um, academic community that are studying this. And one of their ideas is that you can kind of, we need to kind of broaden this out. Uh, and you know, so part of the idea of the CODA is like thinking about this question of legacy and thinking about, um, is there a way we can maintain this? Uh, and I'm just kind of, I don't have the answers, but I'm kind of seeing these are some ideas that are out there. And I think partly, I think they're, they're good ideas for Japan, but they're also bigger, good ideas that wouldn't otherwise be known because this is all happening in a Japanese language context. And so there's a community that isn't hearing these things. Uh, and so partly I wanted to kind of bring those in. So it's things like, um, you know, we need to make sure that we're getting access and information about disability sports to all the people that could potentially kind of have an impact on people that might want to access those. So for example, um, you need to have nurses that are familiar with these rehabilitation centers and know that they're there and know that the sports is an option. You need to have doctors, you need to have uh, in schools, PE instructors, um, when a, a child, because mainstreaming is now you know, mainstream education where students are coming, they're not being just sent to special schools. You're having more and more students being sent to kind of their, their local schools. And so you need to have the PE instructors or the, or the teachers that kind of have some sort of exposure to this so that they're able to kind of get students started. And if they don't know how to do it themselves, then they can send and kind of know who to talk to. Uh, and so increasing training of, of um, you know, instructors and coaches and things like that. Uh, and there's, you know, there is some kind of remarkable progress in there. And then, you know, and the other part, um, you know, I guess that kind of um, that I thought about with this, with this coda is a point that I kind of wanted to highlight uh, or I guess two points, right? One is something we've kind of already touched on is that Japan so often kind of uses this kind of that negative nationalism element to to drive change. And I was I was still seeing it in 2016, 2017, when I was reading these articles in the newspapers and people talking about how Japan is so behind, Japan is so behind. I'm like, well, there's always room for improvement, right? But I also wanted to kind of like, part of what I wanted to highlight again in the coda is that, but there's so many ways in which Japan has been ahead of the curve or, um, or kind of a really a force for kind of change, not always positive, but but change uh, in, in so many ways. Uh, and so that's something I kind of wanted to highlight in the coda as well. Uh, and then the other is this uh, idea of, you know, there's this expression of kind of, you know, the Paralympics came in and they transformed something. Um, they transformed people's lives. They transformed people's mind. They transformed societies. Uh, and, you know, uh, and I, I guess part of my book is maybe making that case, right? But I wanted to emphasize the fact that the games themselves don't do anything. Uh, it's the people that are the ones that are actually kind of the driving force here. And it's, it's the people that are the organizers. It's, it's the Nakamura's, it's the athletes, you know, it's the people, you know, that, that organize all these events on shoestring budgets, right? Part of the, why all the records are lost is because you literally had, you know, people kind of with, you know, five people running international events, uh, you know, and so, you know, this is all something that these things happen because people made them happen because you have people doing surveys uh, of accessibility in a town 
that's what drives the change. It's not the not the games. It's not the disability sports event itself. Uh, it's the people kind of using the events to kind of promote those changes. And that was kind of another another point. I just kind of wanted to hit one more time uh, as I kind of wrap the book up because you know I think if you're thinking about legacy, that's the legacy, right? Is you get these kind of people that are committed to to making these changes, and if you can can then if they have the opportunity to keep doing that, then it's that's where you're going to see the change. Uh, and so, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of pause there, but, but yeah, that's kind of, that was kind of what I was going for in the coda there. And so, yeah, so sorry, I misled you a little bit. Uh, I didn't okay. know. I didn't know. I really yeah. didn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, the, that, that you're forgiven. 2020 was that kind of year. Um, so yeah, so, uh, just in, in wrapping up here, uh, you know, first of all, I want to, uh, thank you for being so generous with your, your time and talking to us, uh, and also for, um, you know, clearing up some some misunderstandings that I might have had about the the, the coda and all. Um, but also you know we, we touched uh, back a minute or two ago on potential uh, future research so mm-hmm. I wonder if you could tell us uh, what you're up to these days yeah so I mean the next uh, agenda on the, or item on the agenda is to uh, is to, to really do something more with with Nakamura as I kind of mentioned earlier um I he was very involved in disability sports and I kind of feel like I've kind of covered that pretty well. But there's a lot of other really interesting stuff that he did. Um, you know, there, he's involved with an event called the Ab Olympics, um, which is uh, about kind of skill-based uh, techniques and training. Uh, and it's, again- So not just for your abs. No, no, no. Uh, no, okay. Yeah, ab, like uh, abilities and skills, right? Skill Olympics, mm-hmm. right? Kind of, right? You could think of it. Um, but it's another event and it becomes an international event that is still, I think still based in Japan. Um, and so he's again, kind of involved with that. He was also really active kind of in the international rehabilitation community. Uh, and, and he's a, a really interesting figure in the sense of, you know, looking at him in terms of someone who in many ways is, is very much of his time and kind of using this kind of very medicalized approach to disability. But at the same time, some of the things he's talking about, um, are, are look really similar to what we end up kind of talking about in terms of like independent living movement. Uh, and so looking at kind of, you know, how, what he's saying and what he's doing and kind of how he's promoting some of his ideas uh, in a way that, you know, beyond just kind of the sports stuff um, is something I want to kind of dig into a little bit. So that's, that's one, uh, you know, and then maybe a small, smaller scale project is kind of looking in, into some of this kind of more uh, recreational side or kind of local. Uh, I, I mean, I would really love at some point to kind of get into the grassroots. That's that's probably going to take me a while because I'll have to actually be in Japan uh, to dig into that a little bit more. Uh, but there's some really fascinating um, communities like to look at. Uh, like Nagano has uh, a really rich uh, outgrowth after the games. Uh, like most of the kind of disability sports programs and communities started uh, after '98 uh, in the region. So looking at kind of they can, can kind of grow right out of this project in some sense of kind of what's happening there on the ground would be kind of cool. Um, and then I've got, you know, a, a much longer term project where I'm kind of looking at coming back to some stuff that I did a long time ago uh, with with Okinawa and looking at kind of military base bases there and doing some comparative work with with military bases in other parts of Japan. That's something I want to eventually, you know, down the road, that'll be a longer term project, kind of a comparative study of, of different places and, and where you have U.S. military facilities in Japan and how they look and how the histories there have shaped kind of differences and attitudes and stuff like that, like going up into, you know, uh, Misawa and, and looking at that base compared to places like, uh, you know, Kadena and, and Koza and places like that. So lots of lots of stuff on the agenda, but we'll see what happens. Well, they all sound like great projects. Uh, and I hope that uh, when one of them turns into a book that you'll consider coming back on the podcast um, and talking to us again. Absolutely. Uh, but for now, yeah. I just want to, yeah, uh, thank you again for your time and we'll call it a day. Great. Great. Thanks. Thanks. 